0: Hi, welcome to JobsCast. In grad school, I heard the words descriptive and normative a lot. Descriptive basically means attempting to describe something to make it more clearly understood, and anything that's normative describes the way a thing should be. So descriptive is is is-focused, and normative is ought-focused. I bring up these terms today, a little less than a month before the U.S. presidential election, as a reminder that all of the psychic and cultural terms by which we operate are invented, and if we propose more and better normative ideas, we can gradually, iteratively, over time, reinvent them so that circumstances are better tailored to human flourishing. JobsCast is mainly a descriptive project, not a normative one. The conversations I have are efforts to bring more light, more information, more context to occupational realities that we take for granted. Good descriptive work should precede strong normative claims, but what's strange to me is that so many people I encounter are descriptively normative about the lives they live, which is to say that how they live each day has a that's-the-way-it-is fadedness to it, with the implication that saying so makes it so, for now and ever, and... What's even more troubling is the degree to which people are irradiated by apathy. In today's conversation, you'll hear my guest mention that about a third of college students are indifferent about hookup culture, even as the energy around hooking up or not hooking up comes to be one of the defining features of the campus experience. I think about that large number in relation to the 45% of Americans who didn't vote in 2016, or the countless individuals around the world who tell themselves every day, either consciously or unconsciously, what am I going to do about it? Or, this is just my lot in life. Or, my parents did it this way, so I should too. In the absence of examination, we let our lives stand on assumptions that are cracked, moldy, and termite-ridden. The foundation we all want is to feel love, safety, and belonging, but our fear of change and our over to conform to whatever we inherit gets in the way of building that sturdy base. In order to do good work well for the right reasons, to paraphrase the writer David White, we need to enhance our capacity to describe the ways in which life is suboptimally structured and introduce new norms that don't lead to us breaking our own hearts. You'll hear an example of such a tragedy shortly in my conversation with Lisa, which today's conversation is so dense with references to enlightening quotes, concepts, and studies that I really didn't need to record this monologue at all. Uh, I think I fell victim to the object of my own critique and accepted the trend of monologuing simply due to it being the status quo, even as I felt that I really just wanted to get this great podcast straight to you. Anyway, today's guest, Lisa Wade, is a sociologist and professor at Tulane University. She's an accomplished scholar and award-winning teacher with degrees in philosophy, human sexuality, and sociology. She's the co-author of the textbook, Gender, Ideas, Interactions, Institutions, and the sole author of American Hookup, The New Culture of Sex on Campus, as well as the forthcoming sociology textbook, Terrible, Magnificent Sociology, which I can't wait to read. She's also written numerous academic papers and book chapters, and perhaps most importantly, in my view, she specializes in being as comfortable in the weeds as she is in the clouds, I took that language from her website, and I really wish I had come up with it myself. It's perfect for JobsCast with these talks explicitly alternating between those two contexts. In our talk today, Lisa and I discuss how hookup culture came to be and how students feel about it, sociology's ability to create large meta-stories that help answer complex questions, the difference between freedom and equality, the strongly gendered rules of hookup culture and how they generalize to broader society and how people tend to respond to gender codes. We also explore how and why traditionally masculine ways are valued over feminine ones, the advent of university party culture and the roles of Animal House and Union College in that story. We touch on friends with benefits, Jordan Peterson and incel culture, and also the trouble with commencement speeches. Please follow Lisa at Lisa Wade, L-I-S-A-W-A-D-E, on Twitter, and go buy her books. She's a wonderful thinker, and I'm so glad to have gotten to speak with her. I now give you my conversation with Lisa Wade. Lisa, thanks for being a part of JobsCast.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me.
0: So, Lisa, if you would please tell listeners what hookup culture is how it came to be, and what drew you to this topic?
1: Well, so the hookup is uh, just, we used to just call it a casual sex or a one night stand. Hookup is just a new word for um, some sort of casual sexual activity with no romantic intent and of course that's been going on for all of human time on earth, there's nothing particularly <laughs> about that. But hookup cultures are um, I would say regions, geographic certainly perhaps even online, um, sort of arenas in which hooking up is the central or only sexual activity that is supposed to be happening in that state. Mm-hmm. So, I would define the collegiate hookup hookup culture that I study. Um, I would say hooking up has become cultural uh, when three things have been achieved. One is that it's ideologically dominant. So generally, most people agree that hooking up is what you're supposed to be doing. Not that you could do it, but that you should do it. And then two, it's very routinized, meaning like there's a, s- a script for how to do it and everybody knows what that script is and how to play it out more or less. And then third, um, it's institutionalized. So it's become part of the rhythm and architecture of higher education. So, so students, when they get to campus, probably before they even get there, they kind of know when hooking up is going to happen. They know where to find hookups. And that becomes part of the rhythm of a week um, on a college campus. So. When we look around at U.S. college campuses, we see hookup cultures on almost every single one we study. The only places we're not seeing them uh, are at commuter schools where there's no residence halls. Um, I also visited uh, the U.S. Um, Air Force Academy, and <laughs> there wasn't culture there but they know where they knew where to go off campus to find (laughs) it right and um and we haven't we haven't really studied hbcus very well at historically black colleges and universities and we haven't studied like the very uh heavy top down sexual culture institutions like evangelical and mormon schools but you know religiously affiliated secular large small elite uh, you know accessible west coast east coast midwest south we see it everywhere
0: Among the people who live in hookup cultures, how happy do they tend to be about it?
1: Well, I'll speak specifically about college. What we find is about 30% of students are completely opted out. They're not interested in hooking up, and they're generally not interested in the activities that kind of spur hookups, the, the big parties with lots of drinking. And so about a third of students just don't participate. And they often feel really isolated from their peers, like they're really missing out on something important, but they just can't stomach what they would need to do to fit in. About, I would say, 15 to 20 percent of students, I hedge a little because the number tends to decrease over time over a student's career on campus. It's Um, higher
0: during freshman year, is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So the majority of students come in very interested in hookup culture, but only about yeah, i say 15 or 20% really like it. Like, they really, really love it. Like, it's the best thing that ever happened to them. <laughs> so they're having the time of their lives. And then the plurality of students, I would say about 45%, are participating with mixed experiences and mixed emotions.
0: I see. And your research draws from firsthand accounts written by the students. Uh, how, did, how did that come to pass? How did you put together that body of research?
1: I was teaching classes about sexuality, sociology of sexuality classes, and talking to my students about hookup culture, and I really noticed that pop discourse about hookup culture at the time was very focused on one kind of student, usually a very sexually active white woman, heterosexual, mm. class-privileged, and then the discourse was about whether or not she should be hooking up, you know, mm-hmm. someone would pop <laughs> in and say... Oh, this is great, you know, these women are sexually liberated, they can do anything a man can do. And someone else would jump in and say, No, 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 these women are not having a good time, and the men are taking advantage of them. And then someone else would jump in and say, Don't tell women what to do, it's none of your business. Um, but the conversation was entirely about this one person and the choices she was making. Interesting. And my students were wildly diverse, much, much more diverse than that story. Having all co- making all kinds of different decisions for all different kinds of reasons and having really different experiences. So I felt like the pop conversation could have intervention there. And then as a sociologist, I was also really interested in trying to describe not the choices people were making or why but the context in which they were making those choices. So as a sociologist, we kind of specialize in looking at the context. And so I set about asking students to tell me their stories so that I could put together the big picture meta story about what the culture really looks like.
0: Mm. I'm realizing, Lisa, there must be some listeners who uh, are eager for some definitional specificity. So when we talk about hookup culture, you mentioned 15 to 20 percent as a figure of people actively engaging in hookup culture. A, what would active engagement in the culture mean exactly? And B, hookup, does that include kissing? Uh, Does it include lighter sexual activity, for lack of a better phrase? How do we tighten up our definitions here?
1: Uh, Well, when 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 you ask students to define hookup, they will give you a wildly ranging definition. Okay. <laughs> you know, I define it as some kind of sexual activity that is implied to have no romantic intent. Sometimes do have romantic intent, but the implication is that, the assumption is that you're not supposed to. So Paula England is a an NYU professor who um, spearheaded a very large quantitative survey, and so if she had to give students something when she mm. asked about culture, so she just said. Um, However, you define hookup, hooking up with you and your friends. Tell me what happened in your last hookup. And so that data showed that about a third of hookups involve sexual intercourse, um, penile-vaginal intercourse. About a third include what we would just call making out, and a- another third involve something that usually is between those two things on the sort of sexual trajectory. So mm. some kind of manual or oral contact with genitals. The definition of hookup tends to be a little bit ambiguous, perhaps on purpose, because then students can sort of define in or define out certain sexual encounters Mm. in a way that pleases their memory, if that makes sense.
0: (laughs) What I found particularly revelatory about your work was the idea that Hookup culture entails a a distance or or a coldness after the fact that it precludes romantic escalation up to the point of dating and forming a, a stable relationship. I was particularly struck by the one anecdote you relayed, I think, in a talk I saw you give where there was a couple that had been having sex over the course of a semester. And it seemed that the two people were mutually interested in each other to the point that they wanted to date and the the man confronted the woman and said, "Hey, you know, I have feelings for you. Are they reciprocated?" And they were." But the girl said, "No, because she felt so much pressure to follow the script. I found it heartbreaking, of course,, uh, not to be too normative about the goal of hooking up as leading to a stable. Uh, relationships. But nevertheless, it, it did seem like the the sort of cultural script precluded acting on a perhaps deeper feeling that they both had, but were afraid to uh, lean into. So can you speak more to that aspect of your research?
1: Yeah, that story is sad. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, that, I, named, I named that student Farah, um, and that's the story of Farah and Teek And she had gotten so good at, you know, quote, unquote, playing the game that when it came time to like take off that hard shell she built up around herself, she just couldn't and she really sort of broke her own heart in that moment. I think what's important to understand is that there's a difference between freedom and equality, right? Like we can be free to do whatever we want in a system that isn't fair and we can be equal in a system that's really unfree. But I tend to, I think in America we tend to conflate those two things. Mm. We assume that if you're free to say yes to casual sexual activity then somehow everybody's on the same playing field, and that's not quite true. So I think what's important to understand is that ultimately hookup culture is strongly gendered, even though men and women are told to play by the same rules, the rules themselves are strongly gendered mm-hmm. and still rife with this really intense misogyny. So if casual sexual activity, if the hookup sounds like a stereotypically masculine approach to sex to you, then you'd be right, you know, this <laughs> stereotypically masculine way of engaging with sex. And so then the stereotypically feminine way, right, would be wanting a, rela- a meaningful relationship, a sexually ex- exclusive, love-based relationship that is centered around care and mutual interest and benevolence. So students, you know, we talk about men and women as opposite sexes. So students have learned to put these two kinds of sex in a binary where they're considered opposite. There's hookup sex on one side and there's relationship sex on the other. And whatever relationship sex is, hookup sex is not supposed to be. And so that means you're not supposed to be kind or sweet or generous or tender with your hookup partners. Sex should be hot, but not warm. So we have that gendered aspect, but then on top of that, we have this persistent and strong tendency to value masculine ways of being over feminine ones in this country. We look up to people that embrace masculinity in some ways and then look down on people that embrace femininity. So that's why, you know, cheerleaders are still like a sideshow and football's still at the center. It's why uh, we are encouraging everyone, men and women alike, to go into the STEM fields, but we can barely get funding for humanities and we're not even sure if social science is a science, right? We think it's adorable when our little girls want to you know play with trucks or like insects in the backyard it's okay if she likes Barbies. but like oh my gosh you know we love it when our little girls embrace a little bit of masculinity so in hookup culture what this means is that there's a permission structure for women to do a little bit of masculinity and how they you know engage with sexuality but everybody now is looking down on anyone who makes the other decision anyone who is Acting in a feminine way around sexuality. So, the worst thing you can get called in hookup culture isn't slut. It's desperate, clingy, mm. thirsty. It's wanting to be liked too much or even liking too much. Right. And so, that's why Farah said no, because the alternative was to embrace this highly stigmatized approach to sexuality that she had spent many years trying to resist.
0: Wow. Yeah. I'm thinking about this sort of preference falsification you're talking about in some cases where it seems like in their heart of hearts, students may want to enter into a relationship, but don't. Do you have any idea to what extent that might filter up into relationships among people in their, say, early to mid-20s? I mean, I'm just thinking anecdotally, I'm in my early 30s, so perhaps it, it filters up to that age range as well. I'm thinking about some friends I have who are single and who are on dating platforms and there's this really intricate song and dance where people want to project a certain image into the ether of the dating platform again i think the fear of desperation is very salient there i feel like everyone's profile is like you know looking for something casual uh and like the limited free time that i'll give to relationships after work when in fact when you you know talk to your friends intimately they really really want to be in a relationship so i I see a link here what do you think about that
1: So I'll give you two answers. (laughs) Great. (laughs) On the one hand, I don't think hookup culture, even even students who really embrace it, I don't think it's going to have terrible long-term consequences where they're incapable of being in a loving, attached relationship as adults.
0: Great. It Um, might not be as bad as social media.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So attachment traumas generally happen to young people. So even if they're having some attachment traumatic experiences in college, those things usually don't have these like deep, long lasting psychological um, outcomes. And historically, people didn't form monogamous romantic relationships prior to marriage. That's actually completely unprecedented in American history until the 1950s when young people invented going steady. Um,
0: Yeah, that's a great point.
1: Yeah. So it it might might be that young people today are learning relationship skills a little bit later, but only later compared to our recent history. That said, I don't think America is a hookup culture, but I do think that the hookup script has escaped college campuses and kind of run rampant. (laughs) And and we could talk about how that happened. I did do um, interviews with 20 students after they had graduated from college. So I first gathered data from them when they were first year students in college. That was my first wave of data. And then I was able to follow up with them in their first year out of college. And what they said was that they felt like the hookup script and the dating script were both sitting out in the world side by side, right? And they had opposite instructions for how to proceed. So the hookup script is like, don't text back for three days. (laughs) Right. <laughs> the right. dating script is like you know be open and generous and responsive, and the dating script is you know get to know one another and decide whether or not you're sexually and romantically compatible after that. And the hookup is the opposite of that, right? right. Um, have sexual encounters and then decide if you're. In. And so any so they're kind of um, these competing logics. And students felt like they were never quite sure what script the other person was following, or when they might flip the script on them.
0: Mm, that's so interesting.
1: One of my students said she felt like there was no ground beneath her feet. She just didn't know how to get her balance with people.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it it really feels like that feeling is often shared on either side of the screen. Do you have any recommendations how young people can perhaps figure out which script they're operating from?
1: Oh, of course. I mean, that's simple (laughs) just just, ask it's it's just communication (laughs) it's it's simple but terrifying right so
0: (laughs) right right classic easier said than done
1: yeah 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 so um if what one wants is to know what the other person wants the quickest way to do that is to say what you want and then ask and keep that line of communication open which of course is much much harder said than done but totally worth it
0: right i agree, Lisa. This conversation is unfolding within the framework of JobsCast, so I want to ask you what you think the job of students is, and perhaps you you would even object to that framing. I'll just say that I feel like there's this perhaps facile binary where some people may think that it's the job of students to get good grades, and that is synonymous with preparing to get a good job good typically defined as lucrative. And other people may say that in liberal arts colleges in particular, you know, the job of students is to equip themselves with the skills and strategies and, and even, dare I say, moral wisdom to be good people. And I guess ideally, maybe, maybe a, a four-year college experience in America could do all of those things. That would be a tall order. What would you say is, is the job of students in college?
1: students take all of those things very seriously. I think they're also getting a competing message to that. Uh, There's a study of of the kind of glossy pamphlets that colleges send out to kind of recruit students. (laughs) Good idea for a study. (laughs) Yeah, they sampled all kinds of different schools and only 50% of the pamphlets had a single person of a student studying. Wow. And I'm sure you can imagine it. You know.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: Sitting out in the grass on the quad, spending time in whatever recreation areas they had, and generally just having a good time.
0: And unlike and, a car commercial where maybe you're driving in the mountains with a beautiful family, which won't come to pass if you buy the given car, if you do actually buy the tuition, you can be in that same beautiful quad, living your life. So. It's interesting how there is a, a sort of compelling aspect to uh, realizing your dreams with that kind of advertising.
1: Mm hmm. And a lot of the messages that students get, even from their family members, if their family members have been to college or not, is that college should be the time of your life because it's your last hurrah right before becoming an adult. And students tend to the media, of course. Uh, the media is. If you watch any television or movie about college life, you'll see very little studying and not a lot of classroom time, um, but plenty of partying most of the time and social life and drama around relationships and friendships. So I think that in American culture, college students, particularly specifically traditional age college students who are living on campus, feel like it's their job to try to have the best time of their life.
0: Mm. Would you say that that has remained true since Animal House came out in the
1: 70s? <laughs> Animal House, that's such an interesting story. So Animal House 1978 is when it came out. It rescued Greek life from <laughs> history because after a Vietnam War and the GI Bill was passed, or the, the Vietnam vets were going to... to um to college on the GI Bill and the fraternities were like, hey, Vietnam vets, come join our fraternity, we'll, we'll haze you, and the Vietnam vets were like, what? And there was just generally like in the 60s and 70s, this non-joining, non-conformist culture and Greek life was really starting to decline in popularity. And then Animal House just revives it. And people still, young people still know that movie after that movie, I think it was University of Oregon or, or, or Oregon State. So I think it was one of those that um, where they filmed it. They started advertising, come here to go to college. This is where Animal House uh-huh. was found. There was a study recently that showed students Animal House and demonstrated that after they watched the movie, they were more inclined to want to drink and do drugs in college. So it really did have this like powerful cultural impact.
0: So interesting. Let's back up. 100 years before Animal House to the seeds of higher education in America and how Union College changed that paradigm.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so okay, so where did we get the idea that college was supposed to be a good time? Why don't we have the idea that it should be more like a place where you just do an incredible amount of studying and work on the quality of your mind, right? So early, early colleges in the United States during the colonial era we're talking about you know 1700s. These schools were really um, places where young middle class men went to become ministers. They were very religious. There was there was very rigid schedules. Church in the morning, church in the evening, much studying of many boring things in the middle. Students <laughs> when to get up, when to go to bed, what to eat, what to wear, how to cut their hair. And they were generally very, very serious places. Then around the mid 1700s, the elite families in the United States are looking around for something with which they can kind of justify their hoarding of wealth and power. And so they they settle on the diploma. As like the reason why they can say, you know, we get to have all of these things and and re- other people don't. So they start sending these young rich white men to college, and those young men are much much less tolerant of the boredom, of the rigidity, of the uh, authority, and of the religiosity than these other middle class men were. Right. So they basically instigate a um, hundred years of rioting on college campuses, and <laughs> not like. You, as we think of it now, like really cleverly worded signs or something. But no, I mean, they all had firearms. <laughs>
0: Jeez, <It>
1: wow. <laughs> shoot out the all the windows of all the campus buildings. They would get barrels, fill them with tar and set them on fire and roll them across the quad. They would play their trumpets all night long and outside of the back <laughs> couldn't sleep I mean people like lost and lost eyes and you know there was um, some deaths and so campuses were having to bring in local militias to like get down these uh, riots and so they're like this is a real problem (laughs) Uh, what are we going to do and so the college presidents all get together and they agree amongst themselves that they're going to start expelling rioters and if they expel a rioter other campuses won't let them in So if you get expelled, you're done in higher education, basically. And they all agree that they're going to do that. And they do. And some schools expel up to 50% of their student body at a time, just like really massive expulsions. Uh, And um, one president, that's Union College in Schenectady, New York, one guy decides that he's not going to go by this pact. And he admits all of these rich kids into his school. And that is where um, the very first social fraternity is formed.
0: Mm.
1: So it's formed specifically by these young, rich, rebellious white men. And so the social fraternity from the very beginning is this place where you kind of give a middle finger to authority and you try to rest as much fun out of college as you can. And over time, that way of doing college becomes the dominant way of doing college. In some ways, every student that goes to campus these days is pressured to try to be the fraternity man um, of 1950.
0: I had never realized that there was such a a literal embodiment of the the Beastie Boy song, You Gotta Fight for Your Right to Party. I guess they really did that at Union in quite an intense way. (laughs) Lisa, your PhD is in sociology, is that right? Yes. And you co-wrote or uh, are co-writing a sociology textbook? Uh, Both. (laughs) So that's a big deal. Perhaps it's not as glamorous or, you know, I don't know if those books become bestsellers the way you know, other books that may appeal to a broader audience, like your hookup culture book can, but that strikes me as, as a big deal within the field. So how did you get on that project and, and what does that entail, writing a, a textbook on a, in a subject as broad as sociology?
1: So I have two textbooks. My first textbook is about gender. It's a sociology of gender textbook called Gender, Ideas, Interactions, Institutions. It's co-written with uh, My Remarks fari And I was invited by Myra to write that book. Right as I was finishing up with my graduate degree, our publisher had been asking Myra to write this book for a decade. Oh wow. uh, She finally decided that the two of us would be a good team. So we wrote that book together. And then coming soon, it's in design copy editing now. I have an intro to sociology textbook that I've written solo. And that book is um, going to be titled terrible, magnificent sociology.
0: Uh, (laughs) Great title and congratulations.
1: (laughs) Thank you. It's based on a a quote by a famous sociologist where he says that um, in many ways, sociology is a terrible lesson and in many ways it's a magnificent one because you learn a lot of discomforting things but you also learn how the world really works which is incredibly empowering. Anyhow, so my goal with my textbooks is to make sociology feel as real as anything in your life. I I want my textbooks to be absolutely gripping, riveting, emotionally a roller coaster, because I I really, truly believe that sociology is a window into reality that can be so compelling and there's no excuse for it being otherwise.
0: I really love that. That speaks to one of my core interests in doing this podcast, where I had a feeling after finishing up uh, a master's program in human development and psychology, and being ensconced in so much deep and and wonderful academic writing that it was deep and wonderful, but not always so easily readable and translatable to to a wider audience, and also wasn't leveraging the tools of literature, and as you say, um, activating us and challenging us emotionally, uh, and really making us want to read. I mean, I, I don't think that... There's anything inherent in the nature of a textbook that prevents it from being a page turner, so to speak, a book that one is, you know, eager to dive back into and, and keep reading. So I think that's awesome. Uh, kudos to you for doing that.
1: Thank you. One of the reasons I wanted to write American Hookup, other than I felt like the story needed to be told, was because I wanted an occasion to become a better writer. And I knew if I was writing to a general audience, I would really have to step up my game. So I, you know, I did my best, and I, I think I, I did. Grow a great deal in the process of writing that book, and then I was able to bring those skills back to writing the first draft of Terrible Magnificent Sociology.
0: So I don't know if you know this, but I read former presidential candidate Andrew Yang's book, The War on Normal People, and you are cited in that book. <laughs> yeah, he he uh, he quotes your research on one third of. Correct me, was it a third of? Uh, relationships on college campuses or in general that were traumatic?
1: Oh, I think it was the statistic is that about a third of students say that their sexual slash romantic lives on campus have been traumatic or very difficult to handle.
0: That seems like a gigantic number. That's bad and sad and might be deserving of uh, some attention for reform So when we think about reform, and you think about what can be done to minimize some of the deleterious effects of hookup culture, what are some ideas you have about bottom-up reform? So students getting together and having open dialogue about what they like and what they don't like about this sort of inherited culture and what they could potentially change about it. And then also from the top down, what are universities and administrations uh, doing about it?
1: So let me contextualize that number a bit. If a third are reporting that, but remember that another third are not participating in hookup culture at all. Mm -hmm. So that would suggest that either 60% either aren't participating at all or are having some quite bad experiences. And recall that, like I said, only about 15 to 20% of students are really having a wonderful time. The truth is that the vast majority of students on campus want something different. And to dig down from there, They want all kinds of different things. You know, some of them want to experiment with polyamory. Some of them would love friends with benefits relationships, which are really hard to form in hookup culture because you're not supposed to be friendly with the people you're hooking up with. Some of them want um, what we would call like the traditional dating relationship where you profess love to one another and are at least um, monogamous for now. Some people would like something more akin to a more religious sort of courtship, and some students want to just be left alone to study. There's a lot of interest in experimenting with different ways of being sexual or with same-sex desire. I mean, any desire you can imagine. Mm. There are people on campus that have it. So all the potential is already there to really break up hookup culture and start to build up alternative sexual cultures on campus that could coexist and compete with hookup culture. Now, from the bottom up, the hard part is that the only way to do that is for students to start having conversations with one another and finding out what each other wants. And again, as we talked about, that's the scariest thing, right? What <laughs> you truly desire is terrifying. But I really think we have this phrase pluralistic ignorance. That's when a vast majority of a population misrecognizes its own reality. So because we have this really stigmatization of anything that's not hooking up, students generally don't share with people outside of their immediate friend group what they really want. And so there's this misimpression that everybody just wants to hook up. So any, any given student does have the power of just being honest and starting conversations and seeing if they can find like-minded people to build up these alternative little bubbles of culture. From the top down, what colleges really need to do is even the playing field. So right now on most college campuses, it's either fraternities or fraternity-like organizations that tend to dominate the social sexual space on campus. On a campus with fraternities, think about how this works. You are 18 years old, you arrive on campus, you're told that you're supposed to be drinking heavily (laughs) <laughs> in order to be having a good time on campus. Yep. So where do you go to drink? You're not allowed to drink in the bars. Or you you need a fake ID, which is maybe expensive and maybe scary, and maybe you're not willing to take the risk of getting caught. You're not allowed to drink in the dorms, at least not in a raucous way. You don't know any upperclassmen who have apartments off of campus, perhaps. Sororities aren't allowed to throw parties with alcohol. So where do you go? Fraternities now have monopolized the one place where students can go party like they think they're supposed to. Um, And if it's not a fraternity, it's often an athlete house or some big houses that are rented and and become party spaces kind of in a cultural way on campus, but for some reason always seem to be filled with usually class-privileged white men. So those same guys who rested control, you know, back at Union College are still in control on a lot of college campuses. And those guys are the most likely to really love hookup culture and endorse it. And so they throw parties that hold it up as what you have to do if you want to be social. Campuses really need to find a way to even that playing field. And maybe that means reducing the power of fraternities and sororities. Maybe it means lifting up other groups on campus and giving them equal resources. I think the solution can, can be tailored, but evening the playing field is essential.
0: I'll quote your own writing back to you. You wrote, Hookup Culture Prevails even though it serves only a minority of students because cultures don't reflect what is, but a specific group's vision of what should be. At the top of the conversation, we spoke about the endemic and long-stemming misogyny that we find, I think, in most environments, uh, if not all, probably all, in U.S. culture. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about. It seems that your background in in sociology, as, as well as human sexuality, could could shed light on some other bizarre cultural pockets that have sort of sprung up in the past five years. Let me ask Lisa. Do you do you know anything about the figure, uh, the figure, the the psychologist Jordan Peterson? Have you heard this name?
1: I am vaguely familiar with him.
0: He wrote a best selling book maybe a year ago, called 12 Rules for Life. He was a clinical psychologist in Toronto who initially enjoyed some limelight by criticizing student protesters in in Canada who wanted certain gender pronouns to recognize their identity preferences. And he made this kind of argument of, you know, if someone changes their mind from day to day about how they want their gender to be referred to, then we don't have any... Solid ground by which we could understand reality. Then he, his writing um, sort of glorified a fairly like traditional kind of masculine model of comporting yourself in the world. I bring him up because I think that he became a sort of hero for uh, men who I think identify as incels or who partake in this incel community online. I know that this might be a little bit afield from some of the stuff that you've worked on, but I will say. It's surprising and disappointing uh, and disheartening to me as uh, a white cisgendered straight male who has enjoyed class privileges. I just feel like there's like a doubling down on misogyny that occurs in like a lot of pockets of white male culture. And I look at them and I, I just feel like, A, it's sort of historically decontextualized meaning like it just doesn't take into account the the weight of misogyny throughout American history and b it just seems to be bereft of compassion for individuals and groups alike and and it's selfish and it's not to say that i think at an individual granular scale i you know i do believe everyone has their own issues and their own problems that they're trying to trying to deal with but i feel like they sometimes get embodied in these kind of political or, or cultural groups that like seem to then have as their rallying cry, like women are the enemy. And uh, it's, just, it's just very weird to me. So I don't know how much you, you follow any of these narratives, um, but, but I'm curious uh, what, your thoughts on, what your thoughts are on that.
1: Well, when thinking about how gender inequality works, it's really essential that we keep in mind two hierarchies. One is the familiar one, the hierarchy of men over women. And the other is the hierarchy of men over men. So idealizing a particular kind of masculine man as the best kind of person, that is exclusive of women, right? It means that women can never quite be the best kind of person. Mm. Um, But it also arranges men in a hierarchy all their own they're arrayed according to how closely they can embody that ideal and there's a lot of men who end up falling far down on that hierarchy maybe they're not they're too feminine maybe they are working class or poor and so you know maybe they're just they're dorks and they just can't do that like kind of confidence that social confidence interaction Mm -hmm that is demanded for whatever reason. But what's interesting about that is that it's often the men at the bottom of that hierarchy that are the most um, vocal about protecting it. And that's because they're in a precarious position. They're at the bottom of the masculine hierarchy, but if we destroy gender inequality, then they have really lost the one thing they have, which is that they're better than women. What this does to men that it doesn't do to women is that it it creates a box in which men men have to live in that is getting smaller and smaller and squeezing them down more and more so we we, you know, we can talk about gender stereotypes and what's masculine and what's feminine and how men are expected to do masculinity and women femininity but in reality because we value masculinity over femininity we let women do all kinds of masculinity now they're not allowed to not do femininity but they still can you know, do all kinds of masculine things. They can play sports, they can become lawyers, they can be ambitious, competitive, you know, we're cool with that. Um, But men can't embrace femininity into their personalities the way women can because it falls, they come down on that hierarchy and it threatens masculinity's priority over femininity. And as women embrace more and more things that are masculine, men have to flee them because Mm -hmm. they're feminized so when occupation when women start going into occupations in certain numbers men stop going into it when women start you know liking certain social activities men have to leave them and so their box is getting smaller and smaller but they're more and more eager to protect the boundaries of that box because they may not be allowed to do many things but they do have dominance over the good stuff right the stuff that gets you money and power and esteem so Heidi Hartman wrote, she's a political scientist, and she said this amazing line once. She said, um, men have more to lose than their chains.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They would rather stay trapped in that box than give up their privilege.
0: That's a great quote. Yeah. It seems obligatory to ask you a COVID question these days. <laughs> what, <laughs> what have you been gleaning, if anything, about how the pandemic has affected hookup culture?
1: tell you what so i do have a plan to start collecting data on this but i haven't yet Um, okay so what i'm going to say is going to be based on speculation and just the few conversations with students i've been able to get Um, my sense is that the virus that students are going to react to the virus just the same way americans have which is in wildly disparate ways (laughs) (laughs) so i think probably what we're going to see on campus is greater polarization between those students that feel isolated and like they can't participate in the big social activities and students that are inclined that were inclined to be reckless before still being inclined to be reckless now right yeah i think we would be seeing even greater polarization the recklessness may be even more extreme and the isolation even more so at the same time there's this way in which The moral valence is being flipped. So whereas before the virus, I think the isolated students would often say, you know, I don't want to do that, but I wish I did because I know that's how I'm supposed to be acting. And I don't know why I don't like hookups or why I can't be casual about sex, but I just can't, you know, I don't know what's wrong with me. So those students would often blame themselves for not wanting to participate in the quote unquote right way to do college. Uh, but now those students who are being more reckless and having those parties, you know, in violation of health advice, we can say they're doing the wrong thing, right? In a new way that couldn't be said before. So I kind of wonder what does the moral battlefield look like right now on campus? And so what are the debates and even arguments amongst young people looking like? I don't know. But that's one of my questions.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. It also makes me curious about universities where Greek life is a prominent part of the culture. I know with universities having phased in plans and some schools doing freshmen and seniors only and some schools, 40 percent of students on campus and each school doing it uh, its own way. I wonder too if there's a sort of party vacuum created by uh, an absence of these packed Greek houses, and and how a how students are getting alcohol then, if that's what they want, and and b what other perhaps organic alternatives to going there are popping up. A lot of uh, I'd be very interested once you once you do some research to see what you come up with on that front.
1: I do have an optimistic read, <laughs> and Great. and that is that is one right. So if colleges ban these big parties, and then those students who have traditionally held power on campus by being able to throw them are losing power, and that creates a power vacuum. Mm -hmm. And then what could happen in response to that is a more egalitarian distribution of who gets to control social and sexual life on campus, at least in the short term. I also wonder, sociologists differentiate between what we call settled and unsettled times, And in settled times, you don't really reflect a lot on why you do what you do or why you think what you think. Those are times when life is just going along as it normally does. And it's quite predictable. And yesterday is more or less like, you know, today and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, Unsettled times are when things around you are changing so rapidly or they're so disrupted that um, your old habits maybe don't even apply anymore and your old values seem out of place. And so you have to start thinking really hard about what you want and who you want to be and what is the right way to behave. So this is definitely an unsettled time for all of us. And it may give students this kind of opportunity to reflect more deeply about what they want. And I really don't know what's going to come out of that. You know, we're all doing this. But for young people especially, I think, It could be such a life-altering experience. So they may come out of this being like, hey, you gotta grab life by the horns. You never know when like it's all gonna come slamming down on you, and you might as well go out tonight because tomorrow could be stay-at-home order, you know. So it could could make some students into much more like short-term thinkers and get your experiences right now, while you can, kind of folks. Or it may make them think oh my gosh, I really need to focus on what's really important and meaningful in life and I need to start building up meaningful connections with other people because they could be taken away or they may need to be sustained over really, really challenging circumstances or both, right? We could have both of this generation kind of embracing both of those things. On a micro level, I wonder if having to negotiate these new interactions that are required by the social distancing rules and the mask wearing will train them better how to communicate and ascertain consent from one another. Mm-hmm. this is a serious problem on college campuses because everyone's just following a script, so they don't they know the script and they don't bother to kind of ask if the other person wants to follow it. But these days, you know, it doesn't. It's not like do you want to have sex? You have to start with can I get within six feet of you?
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's true. The boundary's been extended, yeah.
1: <laughs> can I touch you? Like, Can I <laughs> ask? Do you want to go get a COVID test? Should we pot up for a while, see how that goes, right? right? So I wonder if students will come out of this experience being much better at negotiating interaction.
0: That would be wonderful if that were something that came of it. I, I feel like we have this neologism, uh, I guess it's not so new now, YOLO, you only live once, which seems like a refurbished version of carpe diem, uh, which I I don't know if people in Rome were actually using that phrase or or if we just sort of took it from the Latin. But I think we have some myopia encoded in our slogans. And it is very much my hope that although introspection and reflection, I think, are are not American pastimes at all, I think that they cause people tremendous unease. Um, But nevertheless, I think a lot of uh, I think the events that have been happening have really occasioned introspection and reflection. And if they could perhaps tilt people toward more thoughtful solutions, more collaborative solutions, more long-term thinking. And from my view, we could really use a lot of, a lot of those skills in individuals and, and groups. So I'm going to hope for it. In our preliminary call we had a few weeks ago, we, we talked a little bit about, uh, about what I'm touching on here, about how some of our sort of values and these bequeathed notions of how to live life find their ways into cliches or I guess the cliches carry the bequeathals and one of them is do what you love. We hear this in commencement addresses where perhaps most famously Steve Jobs you know talked about this I think that was at Stanford and you and I sort of commiserated with each other that we feel that this is mostly nonsense find a job uh, a do it do what you love or I should say more specifically finding a job that you that you love. And it's, it's not to be defeatist or pessimistic, it's not to say, don't follow what you're interested in, but it's just to bring an awareness to the corporate structures that a lot of young people find their ways into. And there is often hierarchy and being at the bottom of a hierarchy, sometimes weeks after the, the triumphant uh, commencement speech, and then, you know, you're at the bottom of the totem pole, you're most likely not doing something that lights your passion and makes you spring out of bed in the morning uh, with a huge grin on your face. So. I'm curious to hear you speak more to this idea while, well, again, I don't want to sound so gloomy and have students think uh, that they shouldn't work at all. I want to, you know, inject perhaps more realism in, into this conversation about what might be expected for students in terms of jobs uh, after they complete the job of being a student. Uh, what would you say on this point?
1: Well. I counsel or mentor a lot of students as they're finishing up their four-year degree and thinking about what to do next. And I see a lot of stress around what to do next. You know, we have this question in our culture, what are you going to do with your life? Oh, my Goodness gracious!
0: Question. Yeah.
1: (laughs) What are you gonna do with your life? Oh, who are you?
0: Figure out what clothing I'm wearing tomorrow before I answer that question.
1: (laughs) Yeah, like what do you do? Which we all know means our job, right? Who are you gonna be? There is this incredible pressure to like figure out where in this vast machinery of division of labor that our society has become to insert ourselves. And students are generally looking for like the one thing they were quote meant to do. Speaking of another cliche. And I just think it's such a cruel thing to ask a 22-year-old to try to figure out. (laughs) And generally, the advice I give them is that, in reality, they have probably 100 incredibly happy futures in front of them, and they don't have to find the best one. They just have to find any one of those, and they're going to have a really happy life. And I think that's just a really important message for all of us probably to hear. There are so many pathways we can take.
0: I completely agree. And I'm glad that you you extended it beyond the bounds of the newly minted degree holders. I think to the extent that one can identify the agency they have in their life to do something new and, and to make a change, then go for it. As I land on a cliche myself here, go for it. <laughs> yeah. Well, Lisa, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time. And thanks for the for the wonderful research you do. Uh, I hope that we can connect in in the future. And uh, just thanks again for your time and sharing your expertise with us today.
1: It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you.
0: Take care, Lisa. Bye-bye.